Welcome to Conversations with Academics. You might have noticed I changed the title of the podcast recently, and that is just to reflect that the topics aren't always about work-life balance. This recent episode, I talked to David Murray. He is a Boise, Idaho local, and uh, David and I have gotten to know each other pretty well over the past few years during my PhD here at Boise State. Um, David was an academic for some time, and then an entrepreneur, and most recently, a writer. Um, are we recording right now? We are, but we'll just, it'll be easy. This is interesting, cut. though, this, what I'm saying. <laughs> it's easier <laughs> if they're just going, and then we just have like a natural, you know. But see, this is natural. It is natural, yeah. It's really, it's, just... really, it's not awkward at all. <laughs> Well, so, so how it's actually worked is I had this idea, we have this seminar series at Boise State where every week there's a different speaker. They come in once a week and there was always a sign-up sheet where you, you can sign up to meet with them. And I was just, I, I did that a few times and I was like, I don't always know what to say, but I'm really interested in sort of work-life balance and how people manage time and things like that. And that's how it started. And I, I thought, well, I want to have a conversation that's helpful for people who have issues dealing with that and a lot of grad students have issues when they get into grad school and they're just like wow this is intense you know this is like insane Mm -hmm. and people expect me to work all the time and and so I thought I could have conversations with these people about those topics but then record it so that students in my department could listen Mm -hmm. I thought well what's the easiest way to do that actually I could just sort of broadcast it and anybody could tune in and listen um, and then I think a lot of the speakers who came would like share it with their grad students and things like that. Um, and so that's kind of how it started. And so they are kind of from all over the place and they are basically a random sample of whoever we've invited. So um, I've tried to get a lot of people. Ah, uh, so these were visiting people were, from the, the okay, exactly. pre-COVID. Okay. Yeah. And so now you've fallen on hard times and you're looking... To whatever you can do. So I'm the bottom of the no, barrel. No. Scraping, <laughs> scraping in, in COVID. I got it. Okay. Actually, actually, no, that's not true at all. I, I was thinking about giving it up because I, you know, I, I started losing interest in it. And I actually got interest in it in different ideas um, about truth and what is knowledge and, and how do we find truth. But I'm, but I'm still interested in, in sort of the original thing and sort of in the, the new thing and every, everywhere in between. So I'm trying to like push it in a different direction. I just kind of got bored with it. Okay. Um, and so, cause we can go there actually. Like that would be awesome. Um, I, so just a quick question I had curiosity was the people who've come in. And I, like I said, I spot sampled like maybe five of five or six of the, podcast were they are these all uh it seemed like the people i listened to were all focused in on biological sciences yeah okay yeah so they are okay and i think that would be i think it would be fascinating for you to talk to these folks in the humanities and understand if there's a difference in terms of the way they view work-life balance Mm -hmm. because i'm coming from it from the standpoint of the humanities yeah and, and also the rewards of working in academia, I see as being different than some of the people you've interviewed based on what I was listening to. And also just the way they identify and think about themselves. I, I thought that was, it was fascinating. I was curious if um, it was because of their subject expertise and their interests. So anyway, by the way, we should use all of this. this is, we're off to a good start. I'm just going to say it. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic. No, I'm not. I, I, okay, this yeah. is yeah. No, I think I, honestly, like I always want to understand who the audience is that we're that we're talking to and, and why, because otherwise it's not. If there isn't relevancy, then nobody cares. And right. I think that that's a lesson that applies to like marketing, which is part of my background and um, business and also teaching. So and and the research and the why you should be why you are researching mm-hmm. so anyway i think it's it's always i actually find it really entertaining in podcasts when that conversation ensues about like who who like what are you trying to accomplish here podcaster and so if it's okay <laughs> right. with you i would love to ask you some questions like I'm yeah already, you're, I'm you're already welcome to yeah. people people never do because they feel like it's a 
one-way street, but I, I, I would love that. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess that's your first question is, is who's the audience or, or what's it about? And I think, you know, I, I think I kind of started with the sort of the idea behind it initially, right, is, is, was to appeal to grad students and sort of tell them, look, you don't have to be stressed out because everybody's stressed out. And there are ways to deal with it. And the people who've been in the field the longest, the people who've gone through grad school maybe multiple times and then become academics, you know, postdocs, professors, they've dealt with it for a decade plus. And so they might have some ways to deal with it, or they, they should, otherwise they're probably not very happy. Um, but the, the truth is, is I think it's something like less than 10% of grad students actually go on and continue to be academics. And that's probably mm-hmm. more, you know, people find other things to do. They have other interests. They want to do other things. Um, they move into private industry, things like that, more so than they just can't get jobs. But there's also the job issue where, you know, every every professor has, you know, more than one grad student for the most part in the sciences and, and maybe humanities is different. And and there's just, the numbers don't add up, right? You, you have a professor who might work at a university or, or a uni- in the university system for 30 years, 40 years, and they're pumping out lots of students. And so there just isn't the physical space for all of those students to also go into academia. So I think there are multiple reasons why that is. Um, and so one of the reasons I'm interested in talking to people like you is you've, you've made the transition out of academia, mm-hmm. right? And almost everybody does, yet the sample that I have is exclusively people who stayed in academia because of the way I was sort mm-hmm. of recruiting people. Um, and so, yeah. yeah. So it sounds like there's a premise here that there's grad students who are stressed out and that like being a graduate student is stressful. Is that? Yeah, that, that, that is definitely how it started. And I think I'm, you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm also interested in this idea of truth and, and what we're actually doing. And so it's sort of morphing into something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and so I don't really know where to draw the line and where to, where to, where to really say this podcast is going or what it's about, because yeah. I guess I'm just interested in, in a lot of things. Okay. You know? And so. Cool. Wait, should I introduce myself? Should I? Yeah. Oh, you want yeah, me to? Let's do that. Okay. Yeah. Just so people understand the lens that, that, that I'm looking through a little bit. So professionally, I, I just left my job last November where I was the head of product at um, a time tracking software company that was acquired by Intuit, which makes QuickBooks and uh, TurboTax. And um, I managed a team of 21 researchers and product managers um, whose jobs were to define the product and design the product and um, understand what the customer need is um, in order to make sure that we're not using um, the development resources programmers in the wrong way and wasting money. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately the goal is to be able to sell a product and package it and make money. So the, the customers were other companies? Cut, yeah, it was a B2B company, business to business. So we'd sell to, we were selling a, a, a software that would be used by businesses and employees of those businesses to track time. And it sounds really simple, like, uh, but when you take into consideration all of the things that time tracking entails when you think about overtime and vacation and, and different states have different laws around things and how people want to use and track time based off of their specific jobs and industries, um, and then you think about time being used on a potential project or being able to use it for uh, a bid on um, an estimation on a project. It, it, it becomes very um, complicated and it, it gets into borderline like project management kind mm-hmm. of software. Um, and then you take all that time and you need to put it into an accounting system um, and be able to um, reconcile how people are going to be paid and how you get paid for when you're going to invoice people and that kind of thing. So you actually have like a different perspective on time management, which is something that I think I've talked about oh, yeah. with other people, but you're, yeah. you're actually kind of designing software that helps with time management, right? Or Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
is one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's funny, I, I, um, prior to that I worked at a, so the, the company was a startup, um, and I joined in 2016. And prior to that, I worked at another startup that was a wireless networking company. But I guess my angle on academia here, if we if we go back, um, I I grew up in Boise, Idaho. I went to I wanted to get the heck out of Boise as quickly as possible. Um, and I went to a small college back east called Bowdoin College in Maine. And I entered the school there as a pre med student. Um, I failed calculus and I um, did not do well in the other science classes that I needed to, to achieve in, like biology, unfortunately, and chemistry. Um, and there were some maturity issues and some cultural, you know, issues I was up against there. And I, I ended up having a disaster of a first year. Um, but I took one class that, that just caught my interest and just had me hooked. And it was um, a classical archaeology course. And I, um, I just remember having this moment sitting in a lecture, the professor who ended up becoming one of my advisors, um, ended up, um, I just like, I was looking at him. I was like, he just like walked in at like 11 o'clock. He gave this awesome lecture. All these students were just amazed at the stories he was able to tell and recount. And it, you know, and there was this, he, he, he was an archeologist. He was a classical archeologist. And he incorporated mythology, architect, study of architecture, the study of science and, and the actual archaeology, um, evidence-based research, um, and art, into, and many other and literature um, and history into all of these things. And I was just enamored by the multidisciplinary approach to uh, this subject. And so I was like, and then I realized, like, holy shit this is something that he, like, you can be a professor? Like, that's a job? Like, it never had dawned on me as a kid that that's a job you could do. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, that's that's what I want to do. Like, he, he got to probably have a leisurely breakfast, and then he could stroll in and did that. And he, like, left and, like, went back to his office and did whatever. He, like, looked at art and read amazing literature, and then, like, that was the rest of his day. And then in the summers, he got to go and do field work in Italy and, like live amongst the Italians and, you know, manage some grad students and then come back and, you know, share what he found. I I was like, that's amazing. And so, um, I ended up taking a year off after my freshman year, but I came, so I came back to Boise and I was, that did a couple of things for me. One, my freshman year, I really realized that as beautiful as Maine was, the East Coast was not somewhere I wanted to live. And I really, really appreciated Idaho and the mountains and the people here. And so place became very important to me. But I, I still, I knew I wanted to pursue this line of um, study. And so I went back, to, after taking a year off, I, um, actually I should talk about what I did during my year off. My year off, I worked in a bagel bakery and then I earned money and I lived with my parents which was a humbling experience, even as an undergrad, as a 19 year old. And this was in the early days of the internet. And I got online and I, one of the things my dad said to me is like, you should have a plan and you should be working towards developing skills. And so I was like, okay, well, what does that mean? How, what are the skills I need to know for, you know, to fight if this is what I want to do. And he's like, you know, language is a skill. Maybe you should learn Italian if this is what you want to like pursue. So um, he's like, you could go to Italy and enroll in a language school. And I was like, oh my gosh, I guess I could. So I got on the internet and I found this language school and a boarding house where I could live in Florence. And for um, five months, I just studied Italian. I became highly proficient. And then at the end of that, um, that, that five months, I ended up meeting up with that professor um, and going to southern Italy to do field work. And so that was my first introduction to field work, which I mean, was absolutely amazing. It was, it was just a, a defining formative experience for me. Um, digging, we were excavating a temple, the foundation of a temple. And I found a coin hoard. Like I'm this, I'm this first year undergrad and there were other graduate students. And like I found this, this Roman coin that was really rare and from a, from a, 
um, a period of time in Rome that was very volatile. And this, this guy had only been, um, this emperor had been around, his name was Galba. He, he was around for th- three or four months um, before he was assassinated. And so this, there weren't a lot of coins minted and, uh, with his name on it. Anyway, I digress. And I can, I can probably, yeah. So um, I came back to Bowdoin. I finished my degree. I, I graduated with a degree in classical archaeology. So um, I, I learned Italian in that period of time. I studied Greek and Latin. Um, and I needed to determine whether I had uh, enough language uh, to go pursue a PhD, and I did not. That was one, one sort of gap I needed to improve my Greek. So I did a master's degree in Edinburgh. I jumped right from undergrad to a graduate degree at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, uh, which was a fantastic place to study. And I ended up doing my master's in, on, uh, in classics on um, a, a poet, Latin poet named Ovid. And, um, but in the process, I, I pursued a lot of um, Greek literature as well. It, it was just necessary for me to, to do that. So I've read the Iliad and the Odyssey in Greek. I've read Greek philosophy um, and uh, you know, tragedies and plays and all kinds of things. Um, painstaking and uh, very slow work in a way in process um, and and then I needed to make the decision as to whether what I was going to do whether I was going to go into a PhD program or not and I moved back to Boise with and I had I was um, I just gotten married to my wife who is Dutch and um, we decided that Boise was the best place to raise a family and I was going to take a little bit of time and I wanted to kind of understand what the real world was. But um, I came back to Boise and I remember going through the classifieds and there was an advertisement for adjunct instructors at Boise State. And I answered that ad and began teaching at Boise State in the history department. And um, that was a wonderful experience. It was very challenging. Um, It was something I was particularly good at. I found that I was able to really... um, do well and just the metrics around that were the reviews I got from students and I was actually a particularly difficult I I was really hard grader um, but my ratings as a professor were were really pretty high actually you know when when held in comparison to really seasoned professors so Mm -hmm. I took a lot of pride in the teaching aspect of um, what I was doing so I did that for two years and then I needed to kind of do the you know, proverbial shit or get off the pot kind of thing in my mind. We were having our first uh, kid and um, I needed to make more money. I had been teaching also kind of substitute teaching in the Boise school districts and doing other things. And um, I had figured that um, I would probably need to apply to a PhD program or go get a job. And I had a student who was a, a non-degree seeking student who was taking classes for fun and she was she's in her 40s and she was kind of retired um but she she was like when what's the next class you're teaching next semester i just want to know so i can sign up for it and i was like well i'm actually kind of looking for a job and i've always was intrigued by marketing as a uh, profession everybody watches tv ads right and advertising and there was this allure to um you know Madison Avenue and and the Mad Men. Mad Men hadn't quite come out yet as a as a TV show, but I was always intrigued by the psychology of what makes a person decide to buy something or, or be interested in a brand um, or affiliate themselves and their identity with that. So um, I ended up um, getting a job through this uh, student of mine who um, made a networking. Con- it was basically just a networking connection, who you know, kind of thing. Um, at HP in in a very junior level marketing job. HP was a massive company, and um, I, but I I, I thought I, I went in there and and uh, I thought I was smart, and I realized there was an entirely different language that was being spoken, and I did not understand the language of business. I didn't understand the language of, of tech, and um, and product development, and so I just did everything I could to soak that up and, and and then it took about probably about two years to really kind of understand the way um, 
the business people spoke about the business and talked about it and, and how those types of processes worked and you know different even different companies have their own lingo and and um, and it can be it can you can go from one company to the next and have that experience mm-hmm. and and sort of that culture shock and how many times did you do that how many times did you go to yeah to yeah I'm, um, maybe I should paint the bigger picture too so I I went from academia into a marketing role, and then I started in the on the side. I actually had some side businesses as an entrepreneur, and then I decided to leave HP and start my own business with a partner. And so I owned my own marketing um, agency for a while. And he and I also, um, at the time that the iPhone was in, first introduced, we introduced one of the first iPhone apps in the Boise area. And so I had an, ex- an opportunity and experience as an entrepreneur in that way, where we were selling our services and, and from our app to um, local businesses. And then um, I went from there to another tech startup, which was selling wireless routing and networking uh, capability, basically the ability to create a Wi-Fi hotspot for your business or in a, in a car, um, like a police car. Um, and so basically what we call now today the Internet of Things and, and the connectivity that cellular um, provides. Um, and then I went from there to the time tracking software company. And um, within that process, I've seen some sort of really rapid um, success in some of those companies. And then like just complete falling off the edge of a cliff and, and you know, crash and burn in kind of a, a glorious fashion. I've also seen amazing trajectories of growth with some of those companies um, you know, where the bottom line is growing 100% year over year. Customer, customers just can't get enough of what um, what the company was providing. And I started at those companies early enough that I was able to um, have some share or be invested in the company. And when those companies were acquired, that um, was a financial benefit to me. Mm-hmm. And that has now allowed me to enter the sort of most recent phase of what I'm doing, which is to um, write and a passion that I've, I've sort of had for story and telling story. Um, and so I've, that's what I've been doing since last November. So, sorry, that's a, that was a long-winded and very detailed, um, but I, I got into the details of, of academia. Mm-hmm. So I, um, um, and, and, and so when you asked me to do this, one of the things I was thinking about is like, what, what is academia? Like, like, let's talk about that. And, and I'm, 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 I'm classically trained and so I can go, and when I say classic, I'm trained in the classics and in and, and Greek and Latin. And so it's like sometimes words have a little different meaning to me than maybe in conversation. And so sure. what, what, how would you define academia, Dylan? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I, I think that's tough. I mean, I, th- I think there's a, sometimes a default you know, university or, or some progress of knowledge in whatever field it is. But I, I think... You know, research outside of the university is, is to me clearly academia as well, right? And so that could be a government organization like USGS, for example. Mm. They do they do research kind of on all, all kinds of things, um, and that's they're not they're not teaching students necessarily. They can sometimes. So yeah. in Boise, there's the USGS here is associated with Boise State, um, and so some of those folks are um, direct advisors to some grad students at Boise State. So they can play part of that role, but um, a lot of USGS in, uh, area, in other areas don't don't directly have that role, and so um, I would include that. But but I think it's a good question, and it, it's sort of you know what what do you call um, a business that's doing research, and and whether that's in technology or something else, but they're, they're making discoveries and they might be publishing these things as well, right? They might, they might be actually writing peer-reviewed articles and, and publishing them because they can put that on their website and it mm-hmm. looks good to yeah. you know, have a company that's doing these sorts of things. And so I think traditionally, or at least you know, in the university setting, I don't think we think about those companies as part of academia. Mm. But I guess... Um, I guess for me, a broad definition would be sort of this, the literature, whatever that is, right? And so that, that's peer-reviewed for science, but for, 
for classics and things like that. I don't I don't know if you guys do peer review, so so I'm not saying peer sure. review has yeah. to be a part of it, but yeah. there's some state, there's some there's some literature somewhere, and, and now it's mostly the internet. Right before it was in journals and libraries and things like that, and yeah. we had multiple paper copies all over the place. But there is some sort of abstract, you know, ball of knowledge that that I think of as academia, and and the people who are contributing to expanding that ball of knowledge are are academics. Yeah. But I don't know. Do you? How do you think about it? I don't know that I, I mean, I, I think of like the first thing that pops in my mind is a college campus and, and, you know, there's this sort of place, Mm -hmm. um, and the people who work there are academics Mm -hmm. and, um, and I was, uh, sort of going back and and looking at my, um, reviewing Plato and, and the term academia comes from Plato's Academy, Mm -hmm. which was a grove of olive trees just outside of Athens and where different sophists or people who, who dealt in sophist was a Greek word for a, a teacher or instructor or maybe professor, but you know, comes from the word wisdom, um, would share their ideas. And the Academy, Plato's Academy was just one of these areas, um, in there were in, even just within, um, Athens, uh, Aristotle went and founded uh, what's called the Lyceum, um, which was in another part of Athens, but it was also outside of the city walls and um, important and relevant to these areas is that they were removed sort of from city life and the rigors of the marketplace and the agora at the heart of the Greek city was always was the agora and then the necropolis. And so it was the religious and, and, commercial center of the city. But the sophists would meet outside in sort of a more sort of pastoral setting. And the descriptions of these areas are are really sometimes romanticized, but they had, you know, little stadia where you could go and run a race with a friend. And then you would uh, maybe go and to the gymnasium and you would lift some rocks and you might wrestle. And then you would go and sit under the shade of the tree and listen to a philosopher ask questions about what is truth or beauty or why is it that we, you know, think about these things in certain ways. Um, and so there's this aspect of spirit, mind, and body. And also there were there were temples actually in, in these areas. Um, the Lyceum is called the Lyceum because um, there was a temple there dedicated to Apollo, uh, Lycos, which is... Uh, the version of Apollo who, who was affiliated with wolves. And it's not clear why, but um, Apollo was the god of light and music and art. And you so... Like Lycos? Lycos, yeah, like where you get lycanthropy and uh, like werewolves. And um, so that's where we get the term Lyceum, um, so which... I recognize that from... So spider biology, Lycosity is the wolf spider. Wolf spider, family. yeah. And so I, yeah. when you said that... Yeah. Um, I think, you know, so just to, you know, in, in biology before, a lot of people used to learn Greek and Latin because of the Latin uh, binomial yeah. system. And, and they used to really, you know, learn these terms. And so people would know that. But now it's been sort of thrown out the window because, you know, there are other important things. So. Sure. Yeah. So. No, I mean, they're dead languages, right? Yeah. <laughs> I say that sarcastically. But. Did you know you can go to the Vatican? And you can um, use an ATM that's in Latin. I mean, really, it's one of the few places in the world you can do that. But anyway, I, I, no, it's it, they are. I, I understand why, um, but there is such a rich tradition and, and understanding when you look at, particularly if you travel in Europe. Or I, I spent some time living. I worked on excavations in um, and lived in Europe for about three years um, through undergrad and graduate school. And my wife was Dutch and. She went to a gymnasium. That's what they call, in, in the Netherlands, they call their high school, mm-hmm. is y- gymnasium. And that comes from the classical tradition that that was a place of learning in, right. in ancient Greece. In Italy, uh, where I lived for a while, the high school is called Liceo, which is based on the Lyceum that, that Aristotle founded. Um, so there's this tradition of learning that stems through our um, uh 
society and, and even the word campus, campus is a Latin word that the Romans used to describe a field or an open area. And at Princeton, it was the College of New Jersey, that is a word that um, was the field that was the border between the college and the, um, the town. The Prin Princeton? Princeton, yeah, the co the co what was known as the College of New Jersey, but now it's Princeton University. Mm -hmm. So this term campus started being used in like the 1700s in the United States and in our vernacular um, because that was, that was the thing that isolated the, the pursuit of knowledge mm -hmm. from the, the world of commerce mm -hmm. and the rest of the shit that goes on in, yeah. our, in, the, in the world. So... Um, so that makes me wonder if maybe my definition of academia in, in my head that I hadn't really thought about before you asked me was maybe too constricted towards knowledge producers, whereas maybe a knowledge consumer could be considered an academic. Well, I don't know. I, that's a, that's a really great question. Where, like, where does the beginning, uh, you know, what's the difference between being a dilettante and a scholar? Um, you know, dilettante is somebody who just loves to pursue interesting. And I, I, I actually consider myself to be something of a dilettante. Um, whereas a scholar and scolia is a term that also derives from Greek and um, is somebody who is, is deeper in the pursuit of that and might actually be teaching. Um, the term uh, where we get the word school is also is a Greek scholar and scholar, but um, derives from the Greek word skole. I think I've told you this before. Yeah, leisure. Which means leisure, yeah. And that's because only the rich and wealthy Athenians who represented the aristocracy could go and afford to spend the time exercising and hanging out and then having great conversations. The rest of the people had to work their farms or sell <laughs> their goods or you know manage whatever. Um, so it was a privilege to be able to attend academy or be an academic or a dilettante yeah um yeah it's, it's sort of backwards now it seems like or, or maybe not backwards but you know I, I think one we take for granted the fact that so many people can now go to college go to a university and, and learn whatever they want right but a lot of people don't really see it that way right they they view college as a stepping stone so they get a piece of paper so that they can go and get a job it's like sort of a requirement so that they can work. Yeah. Whereas maybe back then, you know, people worked and people, you know, others who were maybe wealthy enough just, you know, went to, went to university or, or thought about things right. or, or studied things. And now they're sort of blended together a lot more. And I think, I think maybe that's why a lot of students, um, undergrads in particular, sort of have, uh, maybe there's a dichotomy there and, and some students really find love college and, and love to take all these classes and really love the exploration of knowledge whereas others sort of get uh, confused about you know what they're supposed to be doing in, in their lives and what they're supposed to be learning and, and what the best route is to get the job at the end yeah it's it's that like what <laughs> i have this so i have a, a 16 year almost 17 year old who's a junior in high school and we we're having these conversations like what's the value of a college education and my wife now she went to the university of idaho and she got an engineering degree in computer science and immediately she had an internship and there was an and she ended up working at hewlett packard for quite a period of time and then she got into software development as well and, um but she has this like thought process that you go to school and college so you can get a job i i went to a liberal arts college and my thought process was, um, yeah, you know, well, and ref after ref reflecting on it, I was, I was naive. I thought I would be able to get a job um, in anything, um, which was total, total, complete naivete. But this was during the dot-com uh, boom of 2000. I graduated in 2000, and um, people just thought they could get jobs anywhere. Um, it, and the harsh reality of that coming back to Boise, Idaho set in um, very quickly and I was just realized I was best suited to like teach and share what I knew and that I had learned. Academia, I think 
our the university system in the United States, I think what's really fascinating now is it is a system that is in crisis. And I think COVID has really exposed and pulled back the um, that the financial underpinnings of, of these institutions are not solid. And remarkably, they are highly dependent on sport and, and football, of all things. Um, and so there are there there are going to be financial failings in the coming year and then on top of it just the the, the student debt crisis that kids who are in their 20s are facing um and so you know there's that question of like what what am i actually paying for why am i doing this mm -hmm. and um my philosophy is you're going to college because it is your pleasure it is fun it should be fun. If you're not here for that, if you're not here to fully immerse yourself in learning how to learn, because I believe that the majority of kids who've graduated from high school in the United States have not necessarily been introduced to, to the methodology on how to properly research, how to think, how to write, how to communicate. And um, so you're going to college to learn how to learn and you will develop skills that can help you in, in a multitude of professions. Now, that's my humanities-based liberal arts perspective. My wife, who's the engineer, is like, well, you can go to college and, in an and go to the School of Engineering and you can learn very tactical um, you know, coding languages or mathematics or, sure. and, and you can leave college with very tactical capabilities um, and hard skills that will allow you to to go build a, an app or design a bridge or whatever. Yeah. Um, so there is a difference there, and I, I don't mean to like, yeah. No, I, I think my experience is actually more similar to yours, and um, I, I would agree with you. And, and of course, there is a range between you know vocational schools or, or technical schools, and and you know the far whatever the far end is of probably philosophy. I guess you know really just thinking about things. Um, but why do you, I, I just want to back up a bit. You said something about, um, you know, not learning in high school or not learning how to learn and, and how there's sort of a difference there. And I agree with you. There, there's a difference yeah. between pre-university and, and university. Um, but I, I'm wondering why, why you think that is, is that necessary or have we, have we made high school, middle school, et cetera, have, have we... I don't know, turned it into a factory in a way that it's just easier to hand somebody worksheets and, and give them busy work? Or is there a way that we could be teaching students young, at younger ages to sort of think outside the box? And my intuition is, yeah, there is. And maybe we don't do it for practical reasons. But Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, Sir, Sir Kenneth Robinson, he, he has the um, most viewed TED Talk in the history of TED Talks. And it's um, how schools are killing creativity. And I don't necessarily agree with um, him uh, entirely because I believe that learning and a culture of learning starts in the home with with the way parents raise their children. And but he kind of squarely pins it right on our academic institutions, and 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 from a young age to um, all the way to to higher education, and. Basically, what he says is our educational system is designed when you send a kid to college to produce professors. Like we are, the, we have these sort of professor factories and it doesn't work for the majority of people. And so the person who wants to like work on cars and, and be mechanical, you know, they shouldn't, they, they don't need to learn Latin or Greek. Maybe they should, I think there's something there to be said for like a core curriculum around creating awareness around those things. But, you know, by the time those kids get into high school, they don't, they, 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 maybe they don't need to go to college. Mm -hmm. And what we've done away with in our country in like starting in the seven, late 70s and into the 80s is we eliminated shop class in a number of high schools. Mm -hmm. Um there's one vocational center in the city of Boise that feeds all the other, that all the high schools feed into. And it's, you have to travel there to go to. It's no longer part of the, the campus uh, on Boise High, for instance. Boise High used to, in the 60s and 70s, used to have 
an automotive shop where you could take automotive and learn how a car works and learn how a combustion engine works. Um, now you have to get in the if you're a kid who's interested in that first of all you have to be made aware that that program exists mm-hmm. and like just I out of sight out of mind that thing right there is a huge problem yeah um, when people don't see what they can't be they don't you know they they don't know that that's an option like the same thing that I didn't know that you could be a professor yeah and I had a very similar experience this same thing with with research and you know basically catching animals and running around the world studying animal behavior ecology i you know i read the textbooks but i i didn't in my mind it did not cross my mind that you could do that for a living yeah until i was doing it yeah right, right. And, and that was very lucky and i think a lot of people don't realize those things exist yeah yeah. yeah, so I, I don't think it's a path for, and I don't think college is a path for everybody. Anyway, I mean, I, I don't know if we're getting off topic in terms of the, the focusing on um, I don't know if there is a topic work-life, balance, <laughs> work-life balance for academics. Well, I, I do want to get back to this notion of place because I think it's really, if I were to frame this conversation, and, and I picked up, I, I told you I was listening to your podcast and I kind of listened to like five different academics talk through, and and the identification none of them identified themselves as teachers which i thought was interesting they identified themselves with their research Mm -hmm. as a defining thing and then i thought it was interesting that place was really in terms of where you get a job or the satisfaction of my lifestyle and um, how i want to live is really going to be determined by place Mm -hmm. and i also think that like just in terms of getting back to Plato's Academy, having that grove of, of trees, of olive trees, where you can sit and have those conversations. Um, and so I think the college campus itself is, is particularly important. It, um, but, you know, I didn't want to, as a, as a, as a so I go back to my, where I was like deciding, am I gonna be an academic, am I gonna be a professor, am I gonna like go explore other options? And one of the decisive things was I love Boise, Idaho. And I knew that I wanted to stay here or be in someplace similar because I had gotten out and I traveled and I experienced other places. And I can li- I've always said I can live anywhere for two years probably, mm-hmm. but I have to come back here and sort of like enjoy this lifestyle. And um, I... I, I, you know, in classics in particular, and I don't know what it's like in, in biological sciences, but based on what I was hearing in some of those podcasts is like, you don't necessarily get to pick where you live. Like you get the job offer for the University of Kansas. There's probably like, a thousand, you know, however many people, hundred people who applied for that job. And you may have applied for, you know, 60 different jobs. And that's the one offer you got. If you want to pursue this, if you want to pursue your research, and you're, you're going to live in Kansas. And you may be there for the rest of your life. And I, I just, that was a trade-off that I was not willing to make. Yeah. Um, so this is where being a dilettante became more like I can take my curiosity and apply it to other things. And the act of going out and leaving, I left the, the, the grove of olive trees and I went into the city effectively to explore and see what that had to offer. And you know what? It was hard. It was not, there were aspects of it that sucked. Take being you're uh, like on a mission and you have this passion for something, you know, whether it's like the fish ponds in ancient Rome and studying that and, and tie that in with your passion for ancient literature and history and all in art. And then you go to sitting behind a desk from nine to five and you have, um, you know, corporate peons who are, you feel like a you just not, who there you have peons who are like getting in your way and 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 you can feel like you don't matter and and so then that's when I was like okay the equivalent of this to being an academic in the business world is being an entrepreneur and that's so there's a parallel there that like I and which is is fraught with its own like challenges and just hardships but can be, I think, has the same type of reward and also a financial reward that can come with it. Mm-hmm. But um, that comes, you know, you have to do research to understand what it is you're offering. And you're, you're on your own. Like, 
you, you, can, you can rely and see what other things and other people have done in the same way you can in academia. Yeah. But you're on your own to forge your way and, and find a new path because if your product isn't different, if what you're doing isn't unique, then you're, you're probably, and there's different types of entrepreneurship. I mean, I shouldn't, shouldn't. but um, in the world of technology, that's kind of the, that's, that's the way it is. So. No, that, that does make it, um, I think, sound appealing because I think, I think one of the things that people, um, at least that I'm around, really like about academia is you're sort of your own boss, right? You sort of have this yeah. freedom. You have an intellectual freedom to kind of do whatever you want. You sort of make your own schedule. You get to tackle the problems you want. Um, and that, that sounds like being an entrepreneur. It sounds like the way you're sort of describing that. I mean, there are a lot of parallels there, except probably I would guess the financial reward um, has a much higher upper end. I don't, I don't know about averages or anything like that. I don't, know how, I don't have any data, but as far as the variance of you know, some entrepreneurs like Mark Zuckerberg, for example, are, are obviously much higher paid than, you know, than any any academic. But um, let me I think the better way to put it is there's more upside financially, but the risks are, you know, you're, you're not taking grant money yeah. to go start your business. You're usually like taking money from friends and family and when they're not looking. Yeah, well, yeah, sometimes when they're looking because they're, they're but, but. No, so so that, that's, that's one of the things that really intrigues me, I think, about your path is um, you, you've been willing to take risks and, and maybe they're calculated risks. And so this, this last transition to writing, right, is, you know, you, you thought about it. And, and so maybe, um, I, maybe we don't need to go there right now exactly, but uh, what, you know, how do you think about risk in, in all of these entrepreneur um, sorts of positions? And then also when you, when you jump from that to being a, a, I don't know if you call it an independent writer. Or... Yeah. Um, no, I think that's one of the things is probably um, I valued a lot in my life is taking risks. And I think that um, there is a, in, in entrepreneurship, there's a, an aspect of fail fast, you know, get, learn what you can from it and then iterate and adapt. And then if you have, if you end up failing again, then you fail again. I actually don't like the word failure. Um, and, um, I think some people wear it like as a, as kind of like a badge of honor. Um, so, you know, it's some, maybe it's semantics, but I, I do like, um, just this notion of constant learning and continual improvement. And you can't do that unless you take risks. And the risks I've taken have been very calculated. They were not shoot from the hip. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a framework now that I've got, you know, I've got four kids and um, I had a friend of mine teach me this framework. It's called HATE um, and it, it applies to decision making. You should never make a decision when you are hungry, angry, tired, or emotional. And, um, and you know, I've seen friends of mine make decisions. They've left companies out of pride. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was the wrong decision. It was, it was their ego getting in the way. And they weren't thinking through potentially, um, you know, the ramifications of that. Um, so, you know, I've, I've tried to to make those decisions in a calculated and logical way as possible. Um, you know, to, to, to point the, the decision to, to not become an academic. Like, mm-hmm. it was like, I need to make money. I want to stay in Boise, Idaho. It's not going to, you know, and, and, and do I, I often wonder, like, it's the sliding doors. Have you ever seen that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow? No. Oh, it's, it's, it's a good movie. Um, She's uh, I don't even know who Gwyneth Paltrow is. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> the well, name sounds familiar. You're better. You're better. For, you're better off for it. Actually, now I'm going to say that. Now that you included that detail, <laughs> um, she's an actor. Um, but in the story, she ends up. It's a. It's a fiction, um, kind of borderline fantasy. But she has two versions of herself. There's a sort of a parallel universe that emerges because one day, um, she doesn't make the subway doors close on her. She's going to her job and she doesn't make the, in one version she makes it on the train and another version she doesn't. And so she, she, 
she ends up having to go back home and she realizes that her husband is cheating on her and then she loses her job because she was late and then all these things happen to her and then in the version where she gets on the train she ends up continuing on sort of this corporate career and and it's just really interesting to see kind of how these parallel kind of things and and in the end it kind of comes together a little bit in different ways but um I often I, I had this moment where I had a lot of peers who had gone to graduate school that I'd gone to graduate school with or that they had I'd been an undergrad with and they'd pursued graduate schools um, and gotten their PhDs and they all kind of like within three year period got their PhDs and then they started their own research programs and and um, and like there was one friend of mine who was and I'm friends on them friends with them on Facebook and so I was seeing what they were doing she was in Turkey. And just like amazing, working on some amazing stuff, um, and and I was just like, oh man, that that would be that could be me. But I was like, would I still be married? Would I have kids? Would I have been able to do the things I've done now? Probably. And what would my perspective on life be? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I look at some of those people, and I'm kind of like, oh, you you don't know anything else. Like you don't know how. Mm-hmm. the rest of the world works you're you're still in like the grove of olive trees and academic like, academia in some respects can be very much a bubble um, so I think that that's another fascinating um, aspect of academia like the bubble can be really great mm-hmm. it protects you it keeps you it allows you to have the schedule and the lifestyle it introduces you to like-minded people who, or maybe they're not like-minded, but they're, they're probably rational enough to have like really interesting conversations, um, and, and learning. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, well, and that's actually an interesting point. Like one of the reasons, so another distinction about the Plato's Academy was in the Greek world, there were these areas of learning Plato fostered an environment where he invited different sophists to come in and share their views. And so conversation and intellectual debate was was valued. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was interesting, too, is these different sophists were trying to survive. Um, so they were trying to sort of recruit students in the process. And because that, that was their livelihood, these rich, young Athenian men would then like take on these guys as their tutors. Um, it wasn't the case in other philosophy in other schools of philosophy. So, like Epicurus, for instance, you know that, that term epic, being an Epicurean delight. That's where we get um, this um, notion of sort of hedonism. Um, Epicurus was a wealthy aristocrat, and he taught people his school of thinking in his garden, and he they, people would come to his house and they would study with him. But he was solely focused on his work and his view of, mm-hmm. of philosophy and his worldview. He didn't want to invite an outside yeah. kind of discussion and debate. Well, I think sometimes academia, or my experience with it, can feel like that as well. Sometimes, right? It's, I, it's. I think it's often less dogmatic than, like, our political environment, for example, right? Like, the two sides, two different parties, really get into their own dogma, into their own thing, and they don't really want to hear each other. They talk past each other. So I don't think it's that extreme, but it's it's part of the reason I've been thinking more about truth and knowledge and what what are these things more lately because there are some seemingly failure to be skeptical, failure to think about things from all possible lenses, right? We get indoctrinated or we, we, we're trained to think in a certain way and we just sort of continue doing that. And hmm. and one of the reasons I'm interested in talking more about philosophy on the podcast is we've sort of, you know, I think historically, and you would know more about this, but all these schools you're talking about, um, colleges, whatever you want to call them, ancient ones, there was a lot of philosophy and there was a lot of discussion and there was a lot of just sort of thinking about things and or maybe playing devil's advocate, as we say, call it today. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens a lot less now in science or, or in biology, at least in my experience. There, there's a lot, we don't really learn philosophy. Um, it's sort of, you know, the f- philosophers' ideas often are cherry-picked and sort of 
put into mm-hmm. um, the teaching of, of some sort of science, like you know, Karl Popper, for example, um, you know, had this idea of falsification. So you 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 know, an idea is not really scientific unless you can falsify it, and so. Mm you could come up with some set of predictions and then you could falsify this idea and sort of knock it out, right? And so if I, if I see some observed pattern, I can say, you know, I, could, I can think and I can come up with a list of 10 things and then I, I try to knock them all down. And that has actually been sort of transformed or morphed into this other idea that, of null hypothesis testing and statistics where, where the null hypothesis is that, you know, nothing is really happening. And then you have an alternative hypothesis, which is your hypothesis, whatever that, you know, your pet hypothesis, which Popper was actually against, you know, having a pet hypothesis. And if you knock down the null hypothesis, which is that nothing is occurring, then you accept the alternative hypothesis. And if you actually read Popper a bit, it, it actually, I, I think he would strongly disagree with this kind of way of thinking because we're not accepting, you know, there, there never is there really one option to how these things arise, yet we're accepting that if, if we can reject the idea that nothing is happening, right? This null hypothesis, which is sort of, I don't know, that was sort of a long convoluted way to say that, you know, philosophers and philosophers of science and scientists, I, I think from my reading of it, used to be really engaged in what is knowledge, epistemology, and, and how do we, you know, how do we know if we see a hundred white geese, how do we know the next white goose is going to be white? Like, how do we know that all white geese, you know, induction, deduction, these sorts of things. That's, that's what we talked about a lot. And now it's sort of, there's, it, I think it's partially a problem of fitting all the knowledge into your brain because we've learned so much since then about the world. And so a lot of our trainings as training as undergraduates or in university and, and then through grad school is about all of these ideas that other people have found mm-hmm. right? and so you know I, I think people have sort of um, you know that along with how data driven we are now everything's about a lot of data really complex models which is awesome it's cool um, but it feels to me like we've sort of left the philosophy behind in all of that um, and I think that's dangerous do you think that an undergrad or even a grad student today, if you ask them to t- tell me the difference between induction versus deduction, do you think they could, like, on average, like how, how many, what percentage could tell you the difference? I, I think, I think most, most could not. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that's sort of across the board. So what, what's, what's missing there? Like if you could create a, a, a a curriculum or a course or something that every yeah. s- student has to take, whether it's an undergrad or a graduate. Well, and I and the, and this is sort of getting back to the beginning, where I think this could even evolve earlier. Is um, you know, but university setting would be fine. But it's just, I, and maybe this is kind of Socratic, but asking questions, right? Like, like well, what what are you observing? Okay, and somebody makes them, you know, they have to actually be aware of things. They have to be paying attention. I think one of the problems is people are so distracted today. Right? They're distracted with their phones. They're distracted with social media and stuff yeah. like that. that they, they can't really focus on that an observation might be interesting. Right. And so that's, that's the first hurdle to jump over is, is you have to find interest in the world. You have to find something that's actually fascinating and wanting to understand why that might be. But then, I, you know, I think... If you, if you ask somebody that and they say, oh, well, this is this, and, and you say, oh, well, why is that pattern that way? Why is that? And they say, oh, well, you know, here's an explanation. And then this is the part that I, that I think is getting to your question. is like, well, how do you know that? How do you know that that's why that is? You know, we, and we do this all the time intuitively, right? We, whatever it is, mm-hmm. if, it's, if we're growing food and we... We notice little patterns and, you know, I think agriculturists have done that forever, but, you know, in politics or whatever, you, you think somebody's a bad person or a good person because of things they've done. And we're actually building all these really complicated models in our heads all the time and we're coming up with, with what we think is true based on experience, right? And, and that's fine. Like, that's one, that's one form of knowledge, but how do you know that, right? Do we have a set of guiding principles that we think through, subconsciously or not, you know, or consciously? 
that we think through before we're, we're able to say, okay, that's, that's the threshold now, and now I know it. Now I think that's true, or now I think that's a pattern that's observable, right? And in science, we use statistics and math and philosophy to sort of get at, you know, what's more likely, right? And it's, it's probabilistic, and you say, oh, this is more likely than that. But, but certainty, and that's the, there's a huge problem, I think, with a general understanding of science because you hear people say things like, oh, well, science has proven this, or, oh, this, no, I, there, I read a study, and this it, pro it proves that this is true, right? And it's like, philosophically, all of those statements must be false, right? There has to be uncertainty in any statement you ever make. But that can be dangerous in a political world where, you know, if you say, oh, there's, you know, there's uncertainty in this DNA test, therefore we can't say that this person, you know, murdered or raped or whatever this person, right? And, and, and it's like, well, yeah, there is uncertainty, but we also have to realize that that uncertainty is, the, is really, really low in this case, right? And so I, I think we're not really trained for understanding the world and probabilities and uncertainty and things like that, or, um, or even how to build those things up logically, right? Lo logic is missing and induction, deduction, like you said, and, and just thinking about how do I know what I know? And can I know anything, right? And that's an extreme position, but you could, I, I, I very often find myself thinking I can't know anything at all, nothing, right? <laughs> well, you sound like Socrates. That's what Socrates <laughs> said. The only thing I know is nothing, is, is that I know nothing. And, and that's, that's the starting point for all questions. Mm -hmm. um, I was having this conversation with my 13-year-old my the other day in the car, and I was like, do you know who Rene Descartes is? Because he was like, how do, Dad, how do I, I'm having a deep thought. How do I even know if you're real? And I was like, I might not be, Sam, you know, but like, and I was like, how, for that matter, how do you even know you're real? And uh, anyway, so it began this, yeah. this wonderful conversation about existentialism and, and Descartes, you know, famous, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And, and um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, when I was at, in Edinburgh, the one of the for some reason the Scots they they love the history of science and they they love to um, understand the progression and I think that that is a course that is is missing from a lot of curriculums, understanding the history and the evolution of of how why why do we use a hypothesis? Mm -hmm. where, where did the hypothesis come from? Um, and and just the use of that type of, of of method and you know it's very easy to say oh yeah well Socratic method and 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 the scientific method came from the Greeks and, and that was but no but there there's there's something deeper there but at the same time we could talk about you know I think there's aspects of philosophy like the theory of the forms this Platonic idea that is really hard to understand. And I think there's an aspect of accessibility that makes it that makes it hard. And I think that's one of those things in academia that that's one of the challenges of becoming. I think a, a true academic has to make that. I think that's a and, and, and getting back to this notion of teaching. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like a lot of academia gets caught up in the coils of its own sort of like, this is my research and this is what defines me. And damn you all, damn the rest of you, like. Um, Sorry if you can't understand it, you know. Um, and so I think that's a knock that, that, you know, some academics get. But Yeah, I mean, so just to go back a few steps or one step maybe is, you know, I don't, I, I, I find it interesting to think about what I can't know, which is everything, right? But obviously practically that's not very useful. And so I, I guess I don't advocate for just thinking you can't know anything because we wouldn't have vaccines and we wouldn't have cars, we wouldn't have cell phones if, if people just gave up and said, oh, okay, you know, can't know anything. But I do think there's a healthy level of skepticism missing and, and things become dogmatically true in, in not only in the lay public, yeah. but in the, the realm of science or the people I interact with often. And it's, I, I think that, I think it can be really problematic and, and I don't really know what the solution is, but I think I think a deeper understanding of logic, reason, statistics, things like that, probabilities, earlier on in our lives would be good for everybody. Mm. 
Yeah, it doesn't sound like you're advocating. You, I mean, you know that you truly know things. You're not. You're not. Well, what it sounds or, like to me is I. you're advocating for a mindset in which you approach a problem and you're like, okay, I'm going to erase all assumptions. I'm going to be very intentional about this. And I'm going to look at this and question, you know, is that really a recorder? Is that really, you know, is Dylan really sitting in front of me? Yeah, I think he is because my observation is telling me, mm-hmm. you know, but, and obviously that's a very simplified version of that, but maybe it, maybe it applies to the study of bats and why the, the, the long lived assumption that bats have, have sonar capabilities and maybe they have something else, you know, I don't know, but, um, yeah, I think I think skepticism is is something that in this day and age is probably falling short, and unfortunately, and you know what? I think there's actually a movement. Oh my gosh, this is a topic for a whole other, you know, podcast. But um, there, I believe in this country there is a move, an anti-intellectualism movement, and I think it's gotten a lot of traction in the last four or five years, and. So with that comes a, an, an assault on skepticism. Don't ask questions. Just fucking do it or just fall in line. I would love to talk to you about that in the future because I, I, have, I have a lot of thoughts on that too. And I, I would just be interested to hear where you're coming from with that. Cause, uh, but again, another time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dylan. Sorry I was long-winded on some of my... No, that's great. Great to hear from you. You know that I, it's, I, I get to talk every time, and so it's not about me, it's about you.